Hello and welcome to Oscar Podcast, episode 37. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone, from awardsdaily.com. And today we're going to slog through maybe the most boring Oscar year uh, in recent history. And I have a feeling that this this Oscar year is sort of what kind of did it in for actresses because there were three very similar movies that were um, up for contention that were all about farms. <laughs> it was three big actresses of the time. and um, It was a year of Save the Farm. Yeah. Yeah, it sure was. So we'll, we'll dig into that. And um, I also want to talk about Blackfish, which um, I think I'm the only one who's seen, but I really want to give a plug for that movie, uh, which I've been talking about on Twitter and Facebook and, and on the site a lot. But I think it's really important to see if you can track it down. And other than that, we're kind of coming up empty this week. We're going to try to make a show. Maybe you can tell us a little bit a little bit about your adventures at um, Comic Con. Oh sure, yes, I can. I can. Uh, oh, Comic Con. <laughs> <laughs> Traumatizing experience that was. <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad. But so anyway, um, I guess. How do you guys want to start? Do you want to start with? Um, with with the Oscar year, or should we talk more about the other stuff first? Let's, uh, I don't know, are you primed to talk about um, Blackfish and stuff? or um, If you're not, I'm ready to jump into the Oscars. Right. Let's hear about uh, Blackfish. Yeah. Uh, just real quickly, um, it's, you know, it's, it's really like a movie I saw a week ago or two weeks ago, whenever it was, and it hasn't ever left my consciousness since then. And it's actually made me sad every day. You know, like, I know that's like alert the media who cares that I'm sad every day, but it really had a profound effect on me. And it's partly because I'm an animal lover just in general and any stories about animals that are in pain or in turmoil, you know, I'm the kind of person that would put it up on Facebook and sign petitions. And it really hurts to see, for me to see animals being hurt because they're so innocent and they're so, all they do is, you know, kind of do their thing and and nice animals like dogs and cats that are abused um it just kills you you know it just kills you inside to hear about that stuff but um blackfish is important to see because the only thing that's going to change the way sea world um treats these whales these orcas is public sentiment and people spreading the word and making it uncool to buy tickets to sea world to see this it's the only way it's not like the cove where your people's livelihoods are at stake and it's like threatening a you know a whole kind of way of life. It's not that at all. It's just people getting rich, doing something barbaric that they had no right to do in the first place. So it's upsetting and, I, and hard to sit through, but I, I highly recommend everybody go see that movie. I've heard really, too, that it's not just that SeaWorld it makes money off of the entertainment value of having the, the uh, orcas in a circus-type atmosphere, but they make a lot of their money off of like whale sperm and whale byproducts and stuff like that that they sell that is really really lucrative that's an like almost an underground market that we that we're unaware of yeah and blackfish is the first kind of you know moment where they're lifting the veil off of something that has taken SeaWorld maybe 20 years to build up the propaganda machine that makes people kind of look the other way and think oh everything's fine with the whales you know they're I guess we fine. thought that it was all solved with free willy right once we free willy that everything the problem is all fixed yeah but exactly. it, it was just the opposite free willy if anything uh, drew, drew attention to 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 the entertainment aspect of, of the whole thing Yes, absolutely. People wanted to go see Free Willy. They wanted to see the, the whale. And I admit, they're beautiful to look at. 
And I took Emma when she was a baby to SeaWorld, and we got splashed by the whale, and we waved at the whale, and we saw it, you know. And I thought, wow, this is, I was completely 100% being a Californian, bought into the whole thing. And I, it took this movie, really, for me to see exactly what they're doing. You know, I think people think that, oh, it's just whales in captivity, kind of like in the zoo, the elephants in the zoo, and how sad it is that elephants are being kept in a zoo. Well, it's not really just how sad is it whales are being kept in captivity. It's, it's that they're being forced to live against their nature. Um, and they're really, really intelligent creatures, like more intelligent than probably dolphins and dogs. And they, you know, they have a neuroscientist on there examining the whale brain and how it has a larger emotional center even than humans. And they're one of the only species that the mother and the baby kind of bond for life. And the, and the baby stays with the mother his whole life or her whole life. And when the, when the female whales get older, they don't breed. They become ants and caretakers of the other little babies to train them to become mothers themselves. They have just have really intricate social structure. They're really smart. And Which is absolutely destroyed when they're in captivity because they separate them, right? Mm-hmm. They don't even let them. Sometimes they, they separate them and don't even let them stay together. So that's the tragedy of having your child taken away from you. Yeah, if you really so, want the facts, read. There's a Gawker story called, uh, you know, about SeaWorld being really angry with blackfish. They actually dug up a whale specialist, a scientist, um, to kind of debunk all of the points that SeaWorld has made in defense. And one of the things they say is they don't separate the calves from the, the mothers, but they do. They absolutely do because they have to. Economically, they have to. They can't keep a mother and a baby in, the, in a pool for their whole lives. You know, it's just not economically feasible for them. But the real tragedy, other than just that, that part of it alone, they show a mother and a calf being taken away and how she cries for hours over this baby. And that in itself will haunt you for the rest of your life, just that. But there's other things besides that. um, The main thing is Tilikum, the the big male that they stole from captivity when he was a baby in the 70s. And he's this huge, huge aggressive whale who's been mistreated his whole... I'm just starting to think, did I talk about this last week? Did we talk? No, I don't think so, not at all. Okay. Not that I recall. No. Big giant whale being kept in captivity, totally mistreated because he was um, put in this other park before SeaWorld bought him. And he was, he was made to live in this kind of really tiny, dark cave for years. And the trainer would be brought to tears every time he had to shut the gate on the whale. Every night he said, I can't believe we're doing this. Every night I would shut that door and I would feel so horrible because I knew he was just sitting in there in darkness total darkness for years this went on and then Tilikum became aggressive and he killed a trainer and then they sell him off to SeaWorld and nobody tells the trainers that he's an aggressive whale and they just have this whale that they continue to mistreat they put him in the pen with these females who um, scrape him and reject him because they don't want this weird creepy male in there you know they're, they're incredibly familial and territorial, and they, they, they ride around in these little packs or pods. They don't just accept any, oh, here's a whale, you know, mm-hmm. and then they're all thrown in together and expected to be this family. And, and, of course, they reject him and, you know, cut him up. He's all bloody every day. So then they have to separate him, and then he's spending all this time alone. And in between all that, he has to come out and perform for all the people, you know, and do these stupid tricks and... His little fin is falling over, and um, he's kept in isolation. All they do is, like, you know, jack off this whale and use his sperm to, to breed. He's, bre- he's bred, like, 
I think it's like a hundred other whales or some some figure like that. Like many, many other whales are his offspring currently working at SeaWorld. So it's disgusting. It's a house of horrors, and there is no justification for it. No scientist will back up what SeaWorld is doing to these whales. And somehow somebody dropped the ball and decided that this could go on all this time. I don't know who it was. I don't know how it happened. All I know is that SeaWorld has had a propaganda machine going for 20 years on this. But maybe the jig is finally up. I don't know. But it's going to take public support, so I'm really hoping that people go out and see the movie. thing is, people um, tend to avoid movies that they think are going to make them feel guilty. But this seems like the kind of movie they shouldn't stay away from because, I mean, everybody goes to these parks, and it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they hate whales and want to see whales be tortured. But the whales are portrayed as having a good time and being treated well. You know, they do cute little tricks, and they're fed fish, and everybody's happy. And this movie reveals that to not be true and i think most people most reasonable people who would see what really goes on behind the scenes would would no longer want to participate in that and it and it doesn't mean that they're bad people because they had participated in the past yeah that's the thing is that's what i always thought i always my my rationalization was animals are are a lot better off when they're being fed regularly because out in the wilderness it's so hard to hunt for food it's like you know, um, any animal, their cubs will die as they're looking for food or their babies mm-hmm. will die. It's hard. It's hardcore. Bears have to forage for like 16 hours a day just to get enough food to eat for one day. Nature's a bitch. Nature's a bitch. So I, well, I always thought, well, what? You know, hey, they're getting, they're getting as much food as they could ever want. And I used to think that was that was okay and that they were fine because they were getting fed. But it really isn't true, as you'll see from the movie. There's so many things that they violate, so many... I mean, it, it sounds crazy to say the whale's rights because, of course, human beings don't think animals should have rights. But when you see how smart they are and how they could be living in a, a different life and how we should preserve them and study them, you know, and, and you know, enrich their lives, not make, make them... Um, you know, suffer every day basically is what they're doing. They're suffering. Yes, they're getting fed, but the mothers are in agony because their babies are taken away from them. You know, Tillicum, he, you know, they're hunters. These whales are hunters. They're not meant to just, you know, take fish from people. They have the hunting instinct in them. So when they take down trainers, it's like they're taking control um, because they can, because they're 4,000 pounds. You know what I mean? Like, and, and if they get mad at this person, this little tiny person, they're going to show them, you know, that they're mad. And then they're going to take them under, which they did. And, and they were, SeaWorld was sued by OSHA, and they lied on the stand, and the movie proves that they lied. And they, now it's, it's illegal to swim with the whales. They don't let them swim with the whales anymore, but they didn't do anything to better the whales' lives at all. They just looked after the trainers so that nobody, no other trainer gets killed. But there's a really haunting scene where one of the most experienced trainers at SeaWorld is taken under by, by this whale. It's not Tillicum, it's another whale. And um, the same way that Tillicum killed these trainers, this guy is taken down. And he holds his breath. And the whale brings him down, and, and the whale brings him back up again, and he pants, and he pants, and he pants, and he kind of pets the whale as gently as he can, and he tries to stay as calm as he can, and he takes in a bunch of air, and then it, down he goes. And then the whale brings him up again, and he does the same thing, because he must have known what to do. He's the only one who knew what to do. And finally, the whale lets him go after all that, and he crawls his way to shore, and they you know bring in the emergency team to bring him to life and help him. 
I mean, it's really powerful, and it's really hard. It is hard to watch. I wanted to avoid it. Honestly, the only reason I saw it was because Emma made me go. Because she said that on Tumblr, everybody on Tumblr was talking about this movie and that she thought it was important to see. I really didn't want to see it because I knew what it would do and what it did do, which is, you know, make make me feel terrible every single day of my life that this is going on. So One thing that you... that significant about what you said about the fact that that the whale sort of toyed with the guy and didn't 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 try to kill him but would absolutely you know sort of um play not play with him but punish him a little bit and then bring him back up and to make sure he yeah. he, he wasn't killed is it doesn't they're not killer whales he wasn't trying to murder the person right he, he was could. just trying to exert his, and, and establish and uh, his dominance right. like don't mess with me anymore you know that's right i can do this to you if i want to i mean there's so much they don't know about the whales they don't know anything I and mean, in my mind if they wanted to kill the guys the way that they kill seals they would just bite them in half sure you're so right about what so much to, that can be learned from them just the language alone the way oh. they communicate with each other the whale song and things like that we have no idea the the kind of um what goes on for them mentally, you know? No, they, they're, they're... They, that's the, one of the hardest parts is when they show the footage from the 70s when they're taking the babies because the, they speak to each other. Mm-hmm. The guy doing it said to this day it's the worst thing he's ever done. And they, the, the adult whales were hovering nearby as they were taking the babies and they would speak a language and the babies would respond in another language. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. back at them. Like the, they would say something, the babies would respond. That's language. It's, it's you know... It's our inability to accept and appreciate their intelligence. It's not that they're not as smart as we are. It's that we're not smart enough to recognize how smart they are. Absolutely. It's not just a bird tweeting or something. It's not just a just a repetitive tweeting. It's a really complex language that they have. Yo, apparently. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's they're yeah. complete they're the one uh, you know, another scene is when they're stealing the babies, they they do they they plan a coordinated escape and then they send the mothers and the babies off in one direction and the um, adult males off in another direction to try to distract the hunters. I mean, that mm-hmm. is smart. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the babies are hunt- killed anyway because the helicopters overhead are watching them. And so they didn't get away. But I don't. I can't think of another animal other than humans that would be smart enough to coordinate that escape effort like that. I For mean, sure, yeah. So anyway, that kind of colored my whole Comic-Con experience because Comic-Con is down in San Diego right near SeaWorld. So it was hard to sort of focus on what was going on there. I was just so disgusted with the celebration of all these dumb movies and all these, like, you know, so easily convinced fans. And I just was thinking, God, if only we could just mobilize that energy over to Blackfish, (laughs) over Mm -hmm. to SeaWorld and, you know, make some kind of change happen as opposed to just, oh, let's make this guy another million dollars off his dumb movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many ways to raise awareness, and the Oscars, if they're good for one thing, it is sometimes raising awareness and, and um, bringing a movie into higher profile that people wouldn't have even heard about unless it unless it's nominated for an Oscar or wins an Oscar. So we can hope that this will be definitely one of the top documentaries of the year that's up for Oscar consideration. Yeah, I, I don't... I, I know how the Oscars are. You know, there's a really good chance that they'll just ignore it completely. They're, they can be that petty um, mm. if it doesn't follow their rules of what a documentary should be. But if it's popular enough, um, what I'm hoping is that it just becomes uncool to go to SeaWorld. You know, that it people just stop buying tickets. And then maybe they'll change. And then they'll see that if they do this other thing, if they build out a, a pen that goes into the ocean so the whales can be partly in the ocean at least... If they make a commitment to keep the families together, 
maybe people will start if they if they lessen their dumb training shows and, and stop making the whales perform these demeaning tricks maybe people will start buying tickets again that's what i'm hoping because they'll never mm-hmm. free the whales they can't the whales won't survive out in the wild even if they could survive in the wild if they're being in captivity for so long you would worry about them being in danger of the japanese fishing tour people, you know, because the Japanese are after them too for other reasons. They will absolutely just kill them for the for the, for food for their um, food value and stuff like that. that, that right, that but you know, for. to me that's preferable honestly, because at least they're being killed and they're not suffering. And they're being used as food. I mean, to just mm, be and they've had And they've had a life they've had a life in the wild for yeah. some period of time at least, right? Right, and so just to, to make them do all this just so that little Johnny can sit there with his popcorn and be entertained for five minutes. It's just there's no justification for it. You know what I mean? I do think that circuses have, like the Barnum and Bailey circuses, uh, uh, did fall out of favor. But it took a long, long time, didn't it? It took like 50 years before people realized what a sleazy display that was and how it really became, instead of something, a, a fun thing that came to town, it was something that was tacky and, and disgusting. If people still go, you know. Yeah, they do. That's true. But but PETA and and the other animal rights groups have been, you know, pretty hardcore on the circuses, and they've actually they've actually changed the way circuses treat animals and what kind of animals can be used in circuses. That that's that's changed. It's changing. There's progress to being made. So. Anyway, I didn't mean to bring the whole podcast down, but I just think that uh, anybody who's listening, please see the movie. Please tell people to see the movie. Suffer through it because, look, if that poor whale can be sitting in a bathtub for 20 years for the entertainment of the American people, the least we can do, the least we can do is suffer through that movie. Acknowledge that it's happening. Yeah. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. So the cool thing about Comic-Con, the only good thing was um, seeing the gravity footage, which they kind of, Warner Brothers snuck me in to see. I went into Hall H for the first time, see what that's like. And that was cool. The footage is really, it's, it's very much like the trailer, but just extended. You know, How many minutes did you get to see? Six minutes. Huh. Six minutes. Did you get any nerd on you? <laughs> <laughs> I tried really hard not to. I wore my rubber suit. <laughs> They, you know, the, there are a lot of nerds there. You know, I like the nerds. I like the nerds aspect of it. it it's actually the, the comic book people, the people who started the, the convention, don't are, 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 aren't bothersome at all. It's the way that Hollywood has co-opted that audience and how they pander to it that, that bugs me. Me too, completely. I like the comic book geeks. And in fact, yeah. going to Comic-Con, the best thing you can do is go over to Artist Alley or look at the real old comic book salesmen and the the artists that are still selling their wares if you get most of the hall is filled with you know just stupid movies and promos it's all advertising that's all it is it's like it's like walking through a website that has a million advertisements blaring at you that's all it is is you know i tried to explain that to my my teenage uh, pals that i took because they were you know they just they were desperate to get into these panels and you know, they'd wait like two, three, four hours to get in, and they'd be disappointed when they couldn't get in. And I have to say, look, all you're doing is helping them market their shit. Don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> it's not the big, big of a deal. 
It's hard, it's hard it's, uh, reading the tweets of people who were there. It sounds like so many people. I mean, just like everyone is having a blast, though. Everyone who attends really has a fantastic time, and so it's hard to begrudge the the event itself or the people who want to go there because they go for their own reasons. There are all these different factions and types of people in different uh, circles of types of, of interest that they have um, that are that are above and beyond the what the studios have tried to turn it into. Right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I I think that. Um some people have been going for 20 years. Some people have been going for 10 years. You know, my sister Lisa's been around before it became so corporatized. I mean, nobody that really goes there now thinks it's the same Comic-Con that it used to be. You know, everybody mm. acknowledges that it's totally jumped the shark and that it's changed. But I think you're right. I think that the it's sort of like the Golden Globes of film festivals. Like, I think it's just a, you know, big party for a lot of people. They just get their hotel rooms. They get really drunk. They stay out all night. There's half naked girls everywhere. I mean, it's a geek paradise because it's all naked women, basically, you know, catering to the tastes of geeks who couldn't get near a woman like that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's the strange thing about it though, isn't it? The fact that it can, it can be so adult to on borderline pornography or x-rated and at the same time there's so many teenagers interested in going and, <laughs> yeah and who do go and teenagers who do go right. and i guess a lot of them though are accompanied accompanied by by parents like 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 your daughter was well it's like it's it's all eroticized but it's not porn you know like mm. it's it's really it's fetishy, it's fetishy. yeah it's it's like mm-hmm. if you went to a furry convention and there were all those people walking around and for you know the women are like you know like the princess leah and the you know and the <laughs> tight bra and the spiky heels and stuff like that you know it's but all the women are hot you know most of them and you know except for every once in a while you'll see the re- regular geek girl dressed up you know um, but but I, I have to admit, I think it's really fun to go down there and see all the people who do dress up. Like, other than the pretty girls who are just trying to get their picture taken, um, the, the the costumes that people make are so creative, you know. And it is sort of neat to see people all dressed up like that takeover San Diego, you know. I can't say that it's not a fun thing. It is fun. I'm just a big old grouch, you know, just total grumpy old lady, and I'm too tired for it. It sounds like Halloween in the summertime, only a lot less, I mean, Halloween is certainly commercialized, and it certainly seems a lot stranger than Comic-Con does to me. Yeah, it's very much like Halloween, Um, but it's, but it's fan, the, the problem with it is it's fandom, you know, and so... That's why it's weird that the movie studios got involved because they're really kind of taking advantage of fandom, I think, and and turning it into something and prepackaged and generic. And we all know the the effects of having a, a, a preview or a clips or a trailer of your movie shown in an atmosphere when there's you feel like you're in in in, in the surroundings of VIP excitement anyway. It amps up your enthusiasm about whatever you're seeing, and so when you talk about it, you're excited maybe beyond you the point that you would be if you'd just seen it on, on YouTube. And right. so, and so that's a really smart psychological thing that they do is they play upon the fact that everyone is there, all all jacked up on all kinds of you know uh, emotions from, from being there, and that that spills over into their descriptions and, and the word of mouth that gets out about the, the things that they're trying to sell. Right, and that's the same with all film festivals, like even you know Telluride with Oscar or Toronto, like you know if you're in that 
if you're in a sort of a rarefied air and you're you get to see something nobody else gets to see, you're going to be really tend to be really much more excited about it than and Craig. You saw that at Cannes, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of the movies people are excited about there won't make a de- you know will come open here and it'll just be a blip. Like no one will pay any attention. Like for instance, last year at Comic Con, the big movies were Pacific Rim and. Um, Man of Steel. Remember when they showed that footage, how excited everybody was. And people could not stop talking about Pacific Rim from Comic-Con, how great it looked. And Man of Steel, too. Like, they were saying they were crying. And and, and isn't it funny that a year later, those two movies, I love them, I especially love Pacific Rim, kind of hit with a thud, you know? And didn't it didn't really pay off. That investment, that check didn't get cashed. Similar to The Watchmen a few years before that, and um, Scott Pilgrim versus The World was another one that all were heavily, heavily, heavily hyped and buzzed out of Comic-Con, and they just landed with a complete thud. Anybody outside of, nobody outside of that bubble really cared, and they just, they, they just failed. Yeah, so, I mean, take that, take that to heart in this time. I mean, a lot of the movies that got hyped this year, you know, are just going to hit with a thud. I don't know because I wasn't outside of Comic-Con. I don't know what movies translated as being the big buzz of the festival. Um, other than, in my view, Gravity got a nice big push. But other than that, I don't know. What you saw of Gravity, is it true that, I mean, you, what you saw, the six minute you saw, was it all six minutes of one long take? Or you know, you, I think so. I think so. That's what they were saying. That's what Slash Film Guy was saying. I wasn't watching for that because when I saw the clip, I didn't know that's what he was going to do. So I wasn't mm-hmm. watching for the extended take. Um, I didn't find out about that until after and the, during the panel when they talked. So I don't know. In a, in a way, it's good that you didn't notice because you, if it becomes a, a, a stunt in itself, so that it is like, look at me what I'm doing with this extended take. That's distracting. But if you didn't notice, if it just if it just enhances the effect of what you're watching, that's even better. Yeah, I mean, what I got from it was that the effects could be are just this side of cheesy, like. They could go in either direction. It could either be you totally buy it or, oh, my God, you don't buy it at all. But hmm. it also... Um, it also why do you think that is? Why is why? I wonder why that is. Because I don't know. Maybe because it's designed to be 3D, but we weren't watching it with 3D glasses. Mm. That's partly it. It's okay. a performance piece for Sandra Bullock. That's really what gravity is. And that's what I got from the press conference, and that's what I get from the... I mean, and that's why it's going to be tough. It's going to be like Tom Hanks and Castaway kind of thing, you know? Um, George Clooney's in it, but he's not... I think he's more of a supporting player than a, than a lead. Um, I, that's the feeling I got. They don't really talk... They didn't talk much about George Clooney. They talked just about her and her performance. So that was sort of the takeaway, was that it's going to be about her, which is great, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, looks good. So um, that you know, kind of shot to the top of my mu- must-see list. And when is Gravity premiering? How long do we have to wait before the rest of us can see it? Let me well, check real quick. We have to we have to go through the Venice Film Festival snooty critics gauntlet. Mm. So that's going to be the Guy Lodges of the world. Right. Looks like the release date is October fourth. So that's really not that far away. Yeah. So there's going to be August is when the Venice Film Festival rolls out. Everybody will see it there. We get to hear the feedback, and then it'll come out in October. Mm-hmm. But let's move on to Oscars, shall we? Oscars, nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four. The most boring Oscar year ever. <laughs> it's. 
the weird thing about this year is that I look at the list of the movies and I kind of go, eh. But at the same time, I, I remember this year really well because I was I was probably about Emma's age when all of these movies played. And I was sort of just becoming aware of movies as this big deal rather than just the fun thing that you would do on a weekend. And so, you know, I remember when Amadeus was a huge deal. And I remember The Killing Fields and A Passage to India. But watching them now, I can't say that they necessarily really have held up all that well. I mean, I, actually, I didn't. I didn't watch Amadeus. I couldn't because I've always actually kind of hated it. Why? Why do you think that is? Why did you hate it? Um, well, it should have been called Salieri for one thing because it's his movie, and mm. Amadeus Mozart comes across as this giggling, farting buffoon, which has really annoyed me <laughs> because he's a genius, mm-hmm. and to turn him into a sitcom character like that is is offensive. But if I take it. It, and just forget about that and, and focus on the character of Salieri, it's fine. And it's a well-done movie. F. Murray Abraham is fantastic in it, but it, it has always just bugged me the way that it portrays Mozart as a character. I haven't seen it for years, and I didn't have time to watch it again to, to refresh my memory about it, but I did do remember that I kind of liked the fact that it showed that, that he sort of had the personality of a young rock star. He was the they, he was the the composers of the day were the rock stars of that era, and they were the, really the only entertainment that people had. And so you, they were superstars in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the click of, the, of people who could afford to go see and perform. They were a really big deal. And so um, I can sort of understand why they took that slant. With it was nice, you know. too, because it, it veers away from the usual boring uh, musical biopic. It goes a different route altogether, which makes it, it certainly makes it more interesting. It's just a personal pet peeve of mine. Right. I mean, it's, at least it's a lot less um, bizarre than what Ken Russell might have done. Actually, I would like to have seen what Ken Russell would have done. <laughs> I would love that. I really liked, I, I, you know, this is so, it's so funny because, you know, as a, as a young person of the 80s, I graduated in 1983. This was totally my time. And this was the time when these kind of movies, the best picture winner really was still, you know, the movie of the year that everybody was talking about, you know. Right. And, and Amadeus was totally that movie. It took me years before I stopped liking it. I thought it was a great movie. But what made me stop liking it was kind of like what you're saying, Craig, is that I dug into the story and I found it wasn't true. I mean, it's partly true, you know, and but it is sort of a a theory that that this was how it really went down and that Salieri was really the genius and Mozart wasn't and um but it, it, I think it it did sort of down downgrade Mozart you know and unnecessarily so I don't know We should mention maybe that it was based on a play first it was a, it was a it was a a play on 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 Broadway, I guess, it, it won a lot, bunch of Tonys and stuff like that. It won Tony Award for Best Play in 1982. So it was a, it was one of those adaptations. It wasn't just, it wasn't just created out of whole cloth. It was already based on something that that was pre-established. So people, if they hadn't done it like that, people would have thought, well, this is not the Amadeus we saw on stage. Right. No. Yeah. And it wasn't really meant to be taken as a true story. It was, it was more of a kind of a rock opera, sort of a, a you know. It was meant to be a stage show, and I bet it was really entertaining on stage. Saw it, but um, I actually, yeah, um, I won't tell you my embarrassing Amadeus story because it's too embarrassing. But here's here's all the. Um, <laughs> well, that's the tease. I know. All right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Just really, I might cut this out, but um, when I was at Los Angeles City Theater Academy, one of the many times that I fucked up my life in a major way, I was 19 years old, and um, I was 
kind of rising pretty fast as a pretty popular performer there. It was like a really intense theater program, and I was in the acting program. And I got cast as um, as the opera singer in that movie, in that play. Oh, cool. And Sorry. Sorry. Stupid phone. And it was a big deal because... Um, uh, you know, I was still kind of an underling, like it was my first year, and so for me to get cast in this movie, in this play, was a pretty big deal. And where was the performance? What type? Of, what type of venue was it that were you were you performed? All right, we're trying to Sorry, my sister's calling and calling and calling, but I can't get up to get to the phone and talk to her. That's so. okay. Don't worry about it. It's not bothering us. If you can cut it out without too much trouble for yourself, it doesn't bother me at all. Um. Okay, so I got cast as as the opera singer in, um, you know, that blonde woman plays that in the in the movie. That that was the, mm-hmm. the part that I got, and and I was there. I was going to lip sync, and it was a pretty big deal to get this. I remember at the time, but of course, I fell in love, and I dropped out. <laughs> and the way that I ended my relationship with LACC Theater Academy and that wonderful director who cast me and all those friends who counted on me was I left a note on the bulletin board in the hallway that just said, I'm leaving. See ya. That was horrible. I mean, 19 wow. years old, one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. Um, Maybe I was distracted by the phone call because I missed the part where the, the, your reason for, for stop for quitting, for, for dropping out. I missed the reason for why you stopped. A guy. Seriously. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, a guy. Isn't that horrible? Yeah. You get a free pass and you're 19. Yeah, I think so, yeah. God, God help us if we're all held accountable for the things we did when we were 19. No, it was a, it was a pretty awful thing. Um, I kind of sort of repeated it later when I went to Columbia Film School. I fell in love and I dropped out again. <laughs> but at least I didn't leave a note on the bulletin board. <laughs> but those are all different. They're diff- different types of experiences. Film school and being in a play and falling in love are three different types of experiences. And so you just chose one over the other. It's not as if you didn't get any benefit or any, any, any life experience or knowledge or growth from, from the, the failed love affair either. You know, that was also important to, to, to follow through with. Yeah, it was pretty hellish, though. I mean, yeah. <laughs> in both those instances, I kind of ruined my life for a few years. And the thing is, is that I decided I didn't want to be an actor then and there. That was the moment I decided. And, and at Columbia, I decided then and there I didn't want to be a filmmaker. But it, it, looking back on it, it kind of reads like I was just afraid to do something with my life. I was scared. And so I sabotaged you know, any kind of success I might have had. Um, choosing instead the easier route, which was the failed love affair. You know, I listen. We all live our lives in really weird ways. Whoever knows who, how you become, who you become, and where you end up. I made a lot of mistakes, and you know, I feel bad about them, especially that one, though. Um, anyway, it didn't that one's a little harder because people were counting on you. Yeah, and because I did it in such an underhanded way, I said right. goodbye in such a because I couldn't handle it. I was too scared. I had to do it the way that I could do it, and without caring about anybody else. And I'm still friends with some of those people on Facebook now, and I don't think they even remember it probably. But to me, it was a really hardcore thing to do, and I felt that horrible. I mean, horrible. It's, you, did, you just never know how something like that, that is going to turn out, though. You know, and it has a lot to do with the people you're involved with. Because, you know, coincidentally, in 1984, the same year that we're talking about at the, at the Oscars, that's when Frances McDormand met um, um, 
Joe Cohen. You know, that's when they met in college in 1984. And so sometimes, and that worked out really well for them, you know, obviously. So it just, it it just was bad luck that you didn't meet Joe Cohen, but you never know, you might have. And so you have to follow your heart. God, it was like the opposite of Joel Cohen, the (laughs) anti-Joel Cohen. But, um, yeah, you know, and and listen, I, I had a, you know, I'm just, I was always a fuck up, you know, when I was young. It, it's, it's a miracle I even have a job now, to tell you the truth. You know, my life has been nothing but mistakes. Some good, some bad, but still mistakes, you know. But you, but you should never look at it like that. I, I, and this is not going to be on the podcast, obviously. But, I mean, I just feel like that if you change anything about your past, then you don't know what chain reaction or what domino effect that you're going to change what other things are going to change. And so if you're happy with, with, with certain things of your life right now, those you might not have those if you had followed a different path. Right. Include, and I, like I, Emma, you know? Right. I knew I couldn't be an actor. I was never pretty enough. And if I had done that play, maybe I would have gotten some big fish in a small pond accolades. But to what end that? You know, like I couldn't have been an actor. I couldn't have continued down that road, you know? I knew it then, and I know it now. It's just that... I kind of wish that I hadn't been cast so that I wouldn't have had to run away like I did, you know. Anyway. Oh, well, no regrets. No regrets. You should just not have regrets because there's no no point in it. And also, if you if you think if you could go back and redo it, you would do it differently, then it might change the course of your life in a way that who knows what. You yeah. might have ended up on heroin or something. That's right. I mean, if I hadn't gotten in that hideous relationship out of Columbia Film School, I never would have gotten Emma. I never, never would have gotten online. I never would have gotten the kind of notoriety that I have now. You know, even the little bit of notoriety that I have, I wouldn't have had. So. I don't know how I ran across or what made me. I think that I was looking. I was looking to see where I used to live on Havenhurst in Los Angeles. I wanted to see what the house looked like now, and so I found it on Google, on Google Maps, on on, on uh, Street View, and I somehow I stumbled across um, the house where. Dominique Dunn was murdered, which was just like a, less than a mile away from Havenhurst. And to see what, and that house is still there, and it looks very much the same. She got, she had her dream going right there. She, she did become an actress, and look how that worked out. Right, right, absolutely. You know, so you just never know, Sasha. Well, um, Havenhurst is in the valley. Havenhurst, um, the Havenhurst uh, that I lived on was uh, one block over from La Cienega off Santa Monica Boulevard. There's another oh. Havenhurst between between Santa Monica and Melrose. Okay, maybe it goes all ten, the way over the hill. It could, yeah, but this, this is Havenhurst. It was 1010 Havenhurst between Santa Monica and Melrose. Oh, neat. Neat. I can't believe that. Yeah, it was that. a great little neighborhood. It, it, was, it was cool enough then, but looking at it now, it's really gotten apparently a lot more upscale because all of the houses around there, they're all still the same, but they've all been really, like, really fixed up. The, the little place where I stayed that summer, it was a duplex. There was a, a, a lesbian couple that lived in half of it, and then I, I lived with uh, my partner and, and uh, that guy, Tommy Guido, I was before he lived in the other half. It looks like now that house has been recombined into one big house because whoever bought the property decided that they didn't want it to be a duplex. They wanted to make knock out the wall in between and make it one big house. Oh, no. So it's still there, but it, you can just tell they've really remodeled it really nicely. That's a really hardcore, um, upscale, expensive area, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, not, long story short, Amadeus was, was a, you know, it was a big, it was a big deal at that time in the 80s. Um, I don't know, like Craig said, I don't know if it even if people even talk about it anymore. 
It's one of Toy's favorite movies. Toy really, I, I, you know, it's funny. Like I, I know that Toy has seen The Killing Fields, but he, when I spoke to him about it, he has no recollection of seeing it. I had to remind him what it was even about. I know that he was over the moon about it when when we rented it once a long time ago, because it was from, take, takes place in his like region of the world. But I don't think he's at all aware that Amadeus and The Killing Fields even came out the same year, and it doesn't matter to him. You know, those kinds of things. When he talks, when he thinks about the movies that he likes. It's not he doesn't put he doesn't pit them against each other like we do because we're used to seeing them in competition in categories and stuff. So a lot of people don't think of movies like that when they look back upon movies of favorites from their past. And so anyway, I don't know, it's kind of rambling. But what I meant to say is that Amadeus is one of his favorite films. And I don't I'm sure he's not even aware that it won Best Picture, though. Yeah. It's interesting to take it out of that context and realize how probably most people perceive movies. They're not thinking about them in these clumps of, of Oscar winning and losing. They're just thinking about them in the long continuum of movies that they've been exposed to, and some of them they love and some of them they hate. Mm-hmm. And in that context, I think that Amadeus and The Killing Fields and other movies that didn't get any Oscar recognition at all, like, for instance, Once Upon a Time in America, it was, those were strong films, really pretty strong films. I have a lot of more respect for The Killing Fields after watching it again this past week than I think I did when I first saw it. It's really it's, brutal, isn't it? I mean, I didn't watch it all the way through. I just saw a few scenes, but, man, it's pretty, pretty graphic. It is very realistic, almost to the point of being documentary-style doc, uh, realistic, and, uh, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And and uh, emotional and and at the same time inspirational, because of the way that everything works out pretty well for everyone in the end. It's amazing that the, uh, it's a it's a, a testament to human endurance. Thing about it is, as I was watching it, I was feeling a little bit cynical and and jaded about it, and I was annoyed that. Um that Hang Noor won, won Best Supporting Actor. And then I realized, I mean, not that it's a bad performance, but he's a non-actor, and it, and it, and it wasn't necessarily a strong actor of the performance. But then I realized they were awarding the character that he was playing, first of all, but also him and his experience, because he also survived the Cambodian genocide. So it wasn't just uh, on the technical merits. It, it, it was bigger than that. And I, mm-hmm. I, I sort of climbed off my high horse by the time the film was over. Well, one yeah. thing about that character that I read, did read in Inside Oscar was that he, he um, unlike the character in the film who is reunited with his family, um, the, the actor... Um, his his whole family died of starvation. He lost everything and everyone that he knew. The- right, his mother, his father. He had four brothers and his fiance. They all were died. They all were killed during the killing, during the genocide. Uh, we're talking about Hang Noor, right, not Hang not Noor. the real character. Yeah, Dith Pran at least was reunited with his family. So the actor really had a much tougher time of it than the person he's playing. And he's probably one of the only Asians to ever win an Oscar. Right, in acting. I think up until that time, the only agents that had even been nominated were the supporting actress who was in Sayonara. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce her name properly. Miyoshi Yumeki, uh, Japanese actress. Um, there was an actress in Bridge on the River Kwai. There was um, Mako from The Sand Pebbles. And uh, Pat Morita, the same year, from The Karate Kid, were the only Asian actors that had ever been nominated up to that point. Right, and, and have won since... Hang nor has it have any one at all? Who can I? Who can we think of? Off and I really can't think of anyone. I can't either. So that's pretty. That's pretty mm-hmm. dramatic. And he wasn't even really an actor. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. But 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 it was one of those things of how could you not nominate? How could you not pick him to win? Mm-hmm. But it's sad that it doesn't. That movie doesn't really resonate anymore. 
Yeah, I think nobody talks if about it. Watch it but, um, if, if people would watch it, I think it would resonate. But I think that whole the whole Vietnam thing has has gone by the wayside. Not that it took place in Vietnam, but our involvement in Vietnam is is implicated in the horrible things that happened there. Um, right, because it spilled it, over the border, it it it, uh, un, it, un, it un, unsettled the political situation in Cambodia and it enabled the Khmer Rouge to take power because of. Um, the way that the Vietnam Vietnamese war spilled over the border. One thing that that bugs me a little bit about it, though, is that like a lot of movies that are about an important subject, is that it overly focuses on the white character, mm-hmm. and the, in this yeah. case, um, played by Sam Waterston, Sydney Sydney Shanberg. Half of the movie is obviously given over, given over to um, Dith Pran, but it's. It almost becomes a dances with wolves thing, where it there's where it ends with forgiveness, and and we're somehow meant to feel better about the horrible things that happened. And it, I'm not wording this well, no, but it, I agree. It, I understand. I totally hear what you're saying. Not only the fact that that Dithpran was the only Asian character who has any real distinctive personality, the, all of the other Asian characters who are shown are just tropes. Really, they are they are just absolutely either either benevolent or, or evil, one or the other. There's no in-between, and they're, they're not delineated at all whatsoever. And it's not only Sidney Schomburg who's given a, a well-rounded character, but all of the white characters in the movie have really inter- they're really interesting characters. Mm-hmm. John Malkovich and all of the other uh, journalists have really uh, well-delineated characters that the Asians are not given the same benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it's... Um uh, to its credit, it at least um, it, it, it at least casts some suspicion on on Sam Watterson character's actions and makes him a little bit culpable for the things that happened. It's just unfortunate that at the very end that it has to end with this big hug and everybody happy with each other. Mm-hmm. Sort of, sort of sleeping yeah. out of the carpet. Everything that had happened before that, right. I think so too. I think I agree with you about that. It's, it's a little bit wrapped, a little, wrapped up a little bit too neatly at the end. Right, and that's um, actually I, I, the one other movie that I watched of the of the nominees was a Soldier Story, and I'm not even sure if I've ever seen that one. I hadn't seen it at the time, and I don't recall having seen it in the interim. But it was interesting to me because it didn't have a central white character. It was all black people, and there were good black characters and there were bad black characters. Nobody was turned into a saint, and nobody was turned into a devil. They were clearly defined and and well drawn and. Uh, it was it, it wasn't perfect, but it was interesting. And uh, Denzel Washington, probably the first time that he's gotten widespread attention. Um, but it's another one that you just don't hear talked about anymore. Right, I know that's true. Only in only in in terms of Denzel Washington's career do you hear people talk about a soldier story. Right, and he wasn't even the main main or best part of it. Mm. He was great, but he everybody was good in it. It's interesting that it was directed by Norman Jewison, who also directed In the Heat of the Night. So he has a he's one of the most humanistic of of, uh, of Hollywood directors, I would right. say. And he couldn't win an Oscar to to save his life. I mean, he finally ended up winning the uh, Thalberg Award, I think, in 1999. I'm seeing right now when I look real quickly. But um, he was nominated seven times for some some all of his movies have have a really. Um, they're really socially conscious, and that doesn't always go over too well with the Oscars. Socially conscious without being overly preachy. Mm-hmm. Just to say, the um, the um, the uh, 
supporting actor race was quite diverse. They, you had Hang Noor, you had um, Pat Morita, and you had Adolf Caesar for a soldier story. I can't remember a time when that category was that diverse. And also Ralph Richardson, who was nominated posthumously for Greystoke, Legend of um, Tarzan, which apparently, according to Inside Oscar, was going to be Robert Towns' big Tarzan movie. He had researched it for 10 years, and he was going to write it. And what happened was he got put on personal be- He was doing personal best, his directorial debut, which was going over budget. Um, and Hugh Hudson, Chariots of Fire director, got put on Greystoke Legend of Tarzan, but it was sort of, the whole thing was sort of uh, made to look ridiculous when they dubbed over Annie McDowell's voice with Glenn Close. Then the whole thing started to seem silly, but it did get pretty good reviews. Um, I, I didn't even know that, that I didn't know that, that, that they redubbed her voice. Why would they do that, I wonder? Because she has a really strong southern accent. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah and but um, and and Glenn Close could do it like this. <laughs> I've seen the movie, but I never realized that that was her voice. I, I loved never knew that, that movie that year. I was like one of my favorite movies. <laughs> it, interesting that you say that though about the diversity in the best supporting actor um, category, um, because John Malkovich, who I really I love the guy, but he said something really strange that year. It's a really bizarre thing that I wish I'm sure he wishes he hadn't said. He he was pretty sure that he was going to win. Mm. Uh, you're the, uh, he, he, uh, in fact, he didn't even get nominated for The Killing Fields, although he was excellent in it. But he said, I'm up against two Orientals, one of them an amateur, a black guy, and a dead man. So he thought he had it made because he was just dismissing them all as just like, you know, who are these people? Was he kidding? He's, no, he had to have been kidding. I My don't God, know. Surely he was. But I'm you know, this the, where the quote I'm reading, it doesn't say like I can't tell what tone of voice he used or in oh, what God. context. But that's a very strange thing to say. But I, I remember reading um, in that Inside Oscar, he was saying also, I can't remember exactly what they were, but he was also saying, quoted as saying some really bizarre stuff at the time, too. Like his personality was coming out as like one of the weirdest people. Uh-huh. So he might have just been the kind of guy that likes to say things for shock value, you know? Um, it could be, yeah, definitely. I, I, I can see that. And it, that comes across in his performance in The Killing Fields. He was fantastic in The Killing Field, don't you think, Craig? I really yeah. like him in that movie. Yeah, Absolutely. One of my favorite perform- favorite performances by him of all time. It was almost a surprise to see him so young, and but he's still very much, he's still got that whole John Malkovich thing going on, that, that edgy, a little bit unpredictable and weirdness going on. He was a big deal when he was up and coming. He was considered, like, one of the hottest things around, I remember. And, you know, I've watched his career go up and then go down and then to where now he's this great character actor, one of Mm -hmm. the best. But but there was a time when he was being touted as, like, the guy, you know, the biggest lead actor. Well, even that year he 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 was in two of the Best Picture nominees. He was in Places of the Heart and The Killing Fields, both. Yeah, that was the year where he really broke out was this Uh year. Um, but but marking this year in a weird sort of way was the best actress race. We should not let it go because Sally Fields' famous speech, You Like Me, came this year um, because she was winning her second Oscar. She really always thought, even after she won for Norma Rae, that Norma Rae was a fluke and that Hollywood still didn't respect her, that they still thought of her as a uh, TV star and not a serious actress. So when she won this, that's why she said... You know, at this moment, you really, you like me, you know, and it just became, it really kind of overshadowed her whole win and her career. And anytime. It saddens me that she's mocked for that because I think the sentiment is, is perfectly well placed. And she was, she, she, the rare moment 
of an actor being honest and and expressing their true feelings and so so much now everything is pre-scripted and and carefully controlled and nobody really says what they mean and it's all just a part of the marketing performance but that mm-hmm. seemed like a genuine moment it was and, also- and you know what the thing that we have heard that's been passed down is just that sound bite that's easy to imitate and easy to mock and easy to to mimic you know make it sound ridiculous but can i read in the context of what she said i've never i never realized what preceded that part of her remarks until until i read it just a couple days ago but she's she's began her acceptance speech by saying i haven't had an orthodox career and i wanted more than anything to have your respect the first time i didn't feel it this time around i did i can't deny the fact that you like me right now you really really like me so in that in, in that context, it sounds really it's really heartfelt and really sweet, really adorable. It is, and I have to say, as somebody who's been covering the Oscar race for as long as my child has been alive, that she's telling the absolute truth about the Oscars. That's what it's about. It's about <laughs> liking them. That is it. It really is. That's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. But maybe people want to think that it's about something else, about people being deserving, but it isn't. And we have to remember where she came from. She was Gidget, and she was the Flying Nun, right? And so I had forgotten that she was a Flying Nun until I saw, um, what is it, Only God Forgives. Or what, what, did, I, what did I see? Not, not Only God Forgives. <laughs> what am I talking about? Where have I seen her? You just can't shake that movie out of your consciousness. Why am I relating those two things together? I've seen something recently where... I know what it is, but I'm not going to comment. Anyway, I, I had forgotten that she was in The Flying Nun, so I'm sure people must have thought that was ridiculous, that she would play um, a nun who, who could take off flying because she was so lightweight that her her thing on her head would lift her up, right? So but to, to be able to get to win two Oscars after that, after a career that started out seemingly so trivial, it's pretty right. impressive. It is. Um, there were those the three movies about the saving the farm. There was Places in the Heart with Sally Field. There was Country with Jessica Lange. And there was The River with Sissy Spacek. I've seen all three of them. Um, I don't like any of them. The Country is the only one I can kind of tolerate. The River is ridiculous. And Places in the Heart is, is okay. It's just really syrupy sweet. And I don't know what happened that year, but it was almost like they were competing for the one spot of, like, you know, the greatest American actress at that time. And I really appreciate that there were three great American actresses at that time. And it's sort of sad that, you know, we took them for granted, I think, because they were all sort of playing in the same type of movie and they were all competing with each other. And then the other two was Judy Davis, A Passage to India, who was great. Vanessa Redgrave and The Bostonians, meh, you know. Fine, whatever. What stands out to me about that group is that there's no Meryl Streep for the first time in a while, seemingly. She can, uh, it's hard for me to believe that she could have been in a movie that year with Robert De Niro and people would barely remember it. It didn't get any Oscar traction, and I don't, I, I'm not even sure I've ever seen it. Falling in Love, have you seen it? I have, actually. But is it any good? No, mm-hmm. it's okay. I don't think there is a Meryl Streep movie I haven't seen, but, um, but it's just a typical love you know love story they have an affair and they fall in love they play very ordinary people like they're neither of them are because Meryl Streep was getting a lot of shit from people believe it or not for her Mm -hmm. accent and a wig kind of performances and people were complaining about that I think that's one of the reasons why she probably did this movie which was sort of like just you know a typical leading lady typical leading man you know two of the greatest actors Oscar which for for her is going against type but to do something something supposedly ordinary yeah, I mean, I like it. It's okay. You know, 
nothing spectacular or extraordinary in it. That's what happens to even the best, happens to the best of them. That after you win the Oscar, there's the inevitable backlash of people thinking, wondering if you really deserved it over over other actresses who were uh, nominated with you, and even other actresses who weren't nominated at all. You begin to reexamine what happened that year and look back on it and think, you know, did she really deserve it? And so even Meryl Streep suffered that. And I, yeah, I think the only one in this group this year that people will say deserved it over Sally Field was Judy Davis is the one that people come back to and say she's never won an Oscar she should have won that year Sally Field doesn't need a second Oscar Mm. Um, Places in the Heart the reason that it got a Best Picture nomination and probably the reason she won is that it killed at the box office it was the only one of those three movies that really did and that's why it got the success that it got it became um, a box office shakedown it's really interesting that a movie like that could actually do well at the box office, isn't it? And the the top mm-hmm. movies of that year, it's starting to look pretty bad, actually. Um, Ghostbusters, number one, Beverly Hills Cop, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek Three, Splash, Purple Rain, Amadeus, Tightrope, The Natural, um, Tarzan. So you mean the, the top... The top 11 films were really all pretty junky and all, all pretty, you know. I think There was so. nothing in the top 11 films at all that that, that I would watch again, ever. No, really. not even uh, in there's the a, top There's 20. a strong handful that, I would, uh, that I've watched over and over again, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. Which ones do you like? <laughs> Which ones? Um, Beverly Hills Cop is still good. Ghostbusters is still good. Um, mm-hmm. What else did you read off? I can't remember. There was like three or four of them. Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is, was probably one of my favorites of the lot because it's the most the most true to what their vision was and the most different from all of them. Uh, I guess. I can't ever really get past the... Uh, to me, I know it's, I should, probably shouldn't even say because it's a hot button thing, and it sounds like I'm really being oversensitive or something. But it seems really racist to me. Is yeah, it probably is. Uh, is even so talking about talking about the way that that uh, Asian people were diminished in the Killing Fields. Think about how they were diminished in Temple of Doom, where they're just all really eccentric, bizarre, superstitious people that eat monkey brains, or else they're little children who are infantilized and need to be saved by the white guy. But listen how boring supporting actress was. Peggy Ashcroft wins for A Passage to India. The nominees, Glenn Close in The Natural, Lindsay Krauss, Places in the Heart, Christine Lottie, Swing Shift, Geraldine Page, Pope of Grand Children. Pueblo Grange Village, that was a good movie. That was, mm-hmm. really that was a big deal movie. at the time. That movie is single-handedly responsible for me being a Frank Sinatra fan because of Summerwind in that film. <laughs> no kidding. Mm. Funny. Yeah. yeah, it was a big deal. It was certainly a bigger deal in the movies that are getting the uh, the attention here at the Oscars. Um, it seems like it was really kind of soaked in um, do-gooderism, sort of this... You know, save the farm, you know, the killing fields, and then Amadeus comes along and just sweeps. It was a really easy, um, it was a really easy best picture win for Amadeus. It was one of the easiest. um, Definitely stands out in the crowd. Yeah, and it it won everything except except best actor because it, it won best actor for F. Murray Abraham, so it couldn't win for Tom Hulse. Cinematography went to the killing fields and editing went to the killing fields, and and um, Amadeus won actor, art direction, costume, director, makeup, picture, sound, and screenplay. If they had to do over again, I think that they should have gone with the Killing Fields over Amadeus. But like I was saying, I can totally see why Amadeus stands out. 
Did um did any of you watch a passage of Andy again? I was going to, but then I just couldn't. It kind of felt like um I know the of, movie kind of felt like David Lean watched Gandhi and it's like, well, that's supposed to be a David Lean movie. Now I was gonna, really what a David <laughs> Lean movie is. I was gonna say that it's like David Lean in in um um who are the other guys? Um, Merchant Ivory Mode. Right. It's almost like a Merchant Ivory movie more than a David Lean film. And right. because, it, for one thing, it's Ian Forster, who, who the Merchant Ivory were really fond of doing adaptations of Forster. But right. it does seem like a very small scale compared to the other more epic subjects that David Lean tackled over his career. Well, and, and two years after Gandhi, it seems like the United Kingdom already had its apology for colonialism movie, and we didn't really need to have another one. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that it's not a good movie. I'm wondering if you had watched it because I'm wondering how it holds up. But, you know, it's interesting that David Lean hadn't made a movie in 14 years. And I think, and in fact, I know because I'm looking at his quote right now, he says that he, after Ryan's daughter um, didn't get a good reception at all, he lost heart. He lost heart because he was ignored by critics and ignored by the Academy for Ryan's daughter. And he sort of... Uh, lost his enthusiasm and his motivation for 14 years. You just hate to hear that about any director, that they would take it so seriously that that it would demoralize him so much that they would stop making movies. Another thing he said when he lost for, for um, Patches to India, he said, it never gets easier. You worry and you wonder and you keep telling yourself that you haven't got a chance of winning, but it still hurts when you lose. It's like, dude, you're David Lean. What the yeah. hell do you need with any more Oscars or even an Oscar nomination? Look at what you've done with your life. Why should Sad, because it was the last movie that he would make. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, because back then the Oscars really did mean a lot. You know, it's funny mm, that yeah. now they don't mean as much. But listen, they're still studios still pay a shitload of money to get those Oscar wins, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it sort of feels like it's more of a power play, you know. If you get an Oscar, you get you get something from it. Back then, they really did sort of mean something. And like if, if, you know, Jack Nicholson really wanted one, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even, though, mm-hmm. even though they didn't show up and there was that whole wave of the Dustin Hoffmans saying that they shouldn't put um, their art up to a contest like that and that everybody should be honored, even though there was that wave of it, you know, winning the Oscar was was a big, powerful thing. They didn't have a million award shows leading up to the Oscars. You know, they had the Golden Globes and they had the Oscars, and that was it. And nobody mm-hmm. paid attention to the DGA Awards or the New York Film. You know, and, and me, I'm a part of the reason why people do pay attention to that now, mm-hmm. for probably worse and not better. I'm just thinking that for David Lean, though, especially, he, he had already won, too. He won for Bridge Over the River Kwai and for Lawrence of Arabia. He could just quit right then, and he, his, he would be a legend, and his, his legacy would be intact for in him, film history. He was nominated for Dr. Zhivago and was passed over. Maybe one of the things that stung for him about the passage to India is that he directed it, he was the film editor, and he wrote the screenplay, too. So he, he lost three times that night. <laughs> he lost three times in a row the, the night of the Oscars in 1985. So that's got to sting. God, <laughs> who knew he cared that much? <laughs> <laughs> and also, like you say, back then, uh, to get a prestige picture made and to the, and to and to get the financing together for the movies on the epic scale that he was used to, uh, the canvas that he was used to working with, the Oscar cachet really helped. If you didn't, if you had lost that, people thought that they there there uh, maybe it was harder for him to raise money to make the movies that he wanted to make. Yeah, and it's also a way of saying, you know, fuck you back. Like um, David Fincher you, tells a story of uh, 
Rooney Mara and how hard it was to get her cast and how every step of the way he was getting shit from the studio, from, you know, mm. from the producers, from the money people. Everybody was trying to breathe down his neck and say she made, he, that he made, they wanted her, they wanted Scarlett Johansson for the part. And he made him such a huge mistake with Rooney Mara and it was going to ruin the movie. And so when he got, when she got that Oscar nomination, that was like a vindication for him and for her. So I think a lot of times somebody like David Lean or whatever, when they're making these movies, or like let's say for instance Robert Town with um, um, with Personal Best, let's say, and if mm-hmm. that movie had gotten Oscar attention, that would have been such a huge validation for him for being such a failure in the eyes of the studio, money wise, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it should be noted by the way that when they took over Greystoke to give to Hugh Hudson, they hired a new screenwriter and and. Um, Robert Town took his name off and put the name of his dog <laughs> as the <laughs> screenwriter on that movie. And, and let me see if I can find um, that name, if I can find the name of the uh, the screenwriter. If it's still on there, I don't know. Maybe they put Robert Town's name back on it. But um, but he was so embarrassed. And Hugh Hudson said, you know, he should have he should have kept his name on it because this is this is totally his work. Oh, yeah, IMDb has it as Robert Town. They don't have his funny name. Oh, P.H. Mm-hmm. Vazak <laughs> was the name Robert Town put it on. Put on. Another movie uh, it reminded me, talking about the trouble production and the way that they switched. Uh, they had to, uh, had trouble finding a director and screenwriter and getting a script and everything together for Greystoke. The same thing happened in a much more spectacular, spectacular uh, flame out for the Cotton Club for Coppola. Talk about a troubled production, and I still have a lot of fondness for that movie. I think it's I think it's really underrated. I like the Cotton Club a lot, but it's it's amazing that it even that, that could even pull it together and get anything on screen at the end because it became the story behind the making of the Cotton Club would make a better movie than the Cotton Club. You guys well, know you guys, about it. I don't I don't know the story. Can you? Tell Robert us about Evans it? was going to this was going to be Robert Evans' comeback. He was going to direct it himself. He got Mario Puzo to write the screenplay, which once that. Uh, um, Everyone started reading the screenplay. They didn't. No one wanted to take any roles in it because they didn't think that it, that it came together well at all. And so um, Robert Evans pulled, called upon his old pal uh, Coppola to re- rewrite the screenplay. And he and instead of rewriting it, he said, "We have to just start all over." He, uh, Coppola said, "We just have to start all over. They have a brand new screenplay, and nothing we that you have so far can be used." And so all of the pre-production money that Robert Evans had, had spent of his own money was down the drain. And so Coppola takes over, and then he became as. Coppola has a tendency to do. He became more and more invested in it, and, and to the point where he wanted to really be in control. And so he was finally he was able to finally wrest control of the, the the reins away from Robert Evans to direct it himself. But meanwhile, Robert Evans is having so much trouble pulling the financing together, and it was money was just going down the drain. Oh, you know, through all or all sorts of holes, it was leaking out because of it, how long it was taking for pre-production. And so he got involved with some a Cuban, actually a Cuban drug lord. And her, and his, and his, um, and his wife or mistress, who was like a, a socialite at the time, who was also like, I mean, she was li- literally the wife of a drug lord, and he became, he was, they were party friends of his, and there were murders and people disappearing in the trunks of cars and everything before this movie was finished because the, uh, the people who put, ended up putting m- money into it were worried about their investment, and people started getting killed over this movie. It's incredible. Wow, there, that there's, needs, there's that a, needs to be a movie all by itself. There's yeah. a book called Fiasco. It's a it's about 
um, 10 or 12 different you know, movie meltdowns in history. If you can find a copy of this mo- of that book, it's, all, it's, it's too complicated and, and too even for me to even try to summarize. But there's, there's, there's a chapter in, in Fiasco about the making of the Cotton Club that explains it all really well. Or I'm sure you can find it on, on Wikipedia, too. Hmm. That's, that's really. It was a, it was a, it was actually a, a mob. It turned into a mob story behind the scenes. It was a real life mobster, gangland murder type thing going on behind the scenes of the Cotton Club while they were trying to get this movie made. Crazy. I yeah. just remember Diane Lane being like um, Francis Ford Coppola's protege, kind of. You know, she she had done a little romance, but he really sort of made her with the Outsiders and. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Rumblefish, and then he put her in Cotton Club, you know, and that was sort of the beginning of the end for Diane Lane until she rebuilt her career later. Mm-hmm. Uh, As an actress with some heft. Yes, indeed. And a gorgeous Looky- body. Looking at some of the best picture nominees, even the prestige pictures, they were they were you were beginning we're beginning to see the trend in Hollywood. I guess it had gone on for years already, but going as far back to maybe Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. But you see a lot of male bonding movies. Amadeus was a male bonding movie, obviously, in in in, in, a, in a self-destructive way. The Killing Fields, for sure. Um, the all of the the guys in in uh, Once Upon a Time in America it was like a little circle jerk they had going on right <laughs> yeah right. You know? and so that's and and you see diminishment of the of the women in in, in major film roles this year a lot any anyone we're overlooking any favorite favorite performances or favorite movies that we're overlooking how about uh, Jeff Bridges and Starman. It was great to see that the closest that John Carpenter ever got to Oscar love, I think, wasn't it? The Starman? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, a, a shame, though. You know, the Oscars really missed the boat on that one. They don't They don't really notice movies like The Terminator or The Thing or Halloween or, you know, movies like Blade Runner, you know, that are going to change the world or change the mm-hmm. way movies are made. They just don't. It doesn't ever enter Oscar world. What we have in Starman is Jeff Bridges playing a character who does not have any normal, recognizable human emotions. And so how do you, how do you get people to care about the character like that? And he pulls it off. Yeah. He does. Yeah. I, we should say, you know, we forgot to talk about Rumblefish last year. But, I mean, you know, for when we were talking about last year's Oscars, Rumblefish mm-hmm. is like, it, it really needs to be, I think, brought out and rediscovered and reevaluated and, re- and appreciated f- for what it was. I mean, if you do like an image search um, on Google image search of, of Rumblefish and you look at the stills from that movie, mm-hmm. it was so beautiful, you know, so richly drawn. I don't know why I'm saying this. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. No, I think it's important than- because I was going to say the same thing about the Killing Fields. I think that one of the reasons the Killing Fields has been overlooked, you know, won the Oscar for Best Cinematography, Chris Menges, who went on to be nominated like five or six more times and won again. Did he win for The Reader? I think he did win for The Reader. Yeah. Um, um, Fantastic cinematography in that movie, but it didn't come across well on VHS tape and on the on the substandard DVD copies that that would have been going around for years. And the same thing for Rumblefish. That movie just didn't look very good on 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 tape or on DVD. But mm-hmm. restored for Blu-ray, they look fantastic. Oh, I bet that is such a pretty movie. It really it looks like the Last Picture Show, just 
you know, the way that the black and white is filmed. Like, I can't separate Rumblefish and The Outsiders in my head because they came out in the same year and they're both obviously Coppola and they're both S.E. Hinton novels. Um, but uh, Rumblefish obviously is the, the more striking. They're both really good looking, but Rumblefish all the more so because of the black and white. That's right. That's what really makes it stand out. It's just stunningly beautiful black and white. And I think for that reason, it really should be, you know, um, dragged out and... and uh, Reevaluated that we didn't talk about it last time, but for that movie not to have gotten any Oscar attention is really embarrassing for them. We and, should do a whole podcast sometime just about Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, I mean, I mean, we kind of did all throughout the seventies, but I think you know, he, for all the accolades that he's gotten, I still kind of feel like he's a little bit taken for granted, I especially so. now when he when he's he's not hitting home runs every time at the plate, and people are a little bit dismissive of him. Well, it's the same the... thing you said before, Sasha, about the fact that once a director does an absolutely s- superb pinnacle, he reaches the pinnacle of, a, of his career, how do you top it? And if you don't top it, how do you get the Oscars to give you any attention? You right? can't, yeah. And how do you top mm. two of the greatest films of all time? How do you top Godfather 1 and Godfather 2? How? Yeah. You uh-huh. can't. You In, can't top Anything those you movies. do after that is looked, as, uh, looked upon as like, a, like you've fallen. Right, it's like Meryl Streep. That's why she didn't win for so many years because she had to beat Sophie's Choice to win. And how are you going to beat Sophie's Choice? It's like the greatest performance of all time, uh, one of them certainly. So you know he had to top those, and he never would. Even as great as Rumblefish and Apocalypse Now are, and they are fantastic movies. I would even argue that Apocalypse Now is of equal value to the two Godfather movies. Mm-hmm. But um, but Rumblefish. I toss one from the heart in there too. Yeah, I mean, he's a a really great director and versatile director and brave man, you know, wanting to do all these different things with his career. It must have been kind of hard for him to always be under the shadow of those two movies. You wonder if um, he's gotten over it, though, now, because he kind of seems to have... He kind of seems to have sort of embraced his, his late career freedom to do whatever he wants. I hope he has, because most people would never get near that kind of success, you know, to, to have made those movies in his life. And to have even made a Godfather 1, let alone a Godfather 2. To have made some of the greatest American movies ever during a decade when there were a lot of greatest American movies ever is pretty incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, he should really... That's a, that's a great thing to take to your grave. It's a hell of a lot better than I left a, a note on the bulletin board at Los Angeles City College <laughs> dropping out of a play. And he made Sofia Coppola. Is another thing he made. Exactly. That's a, that's a great value. And so, uh, Sasha, you can you can think you can hold some hope that you made Emma, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. He made and nurtured um, Sofia Coppola. He really nurtured her as an artist, and you know he's been helping her since what? Since she was a little kid. First, she's in the Godfather, uh, Godfather, the end of the Godfather. She's in that. And she's, you know, she's part of life lessons. And, you know, she basically helped ruin his career for a few years. <laughs> but, then she, but then she it made wasn't him proud. Her fault. <laughs> but then she made him proud, you know, all these years later. And she's, you know, she's a pioneer uh, for, for, for women auteurs. So that's fantastic, too. He must be so proud of just that fact alone that he, he produced her. Another important thing that happened in 1984, not to just shift gears all of a sudden, oh, but, um, but in 1984, uh, the Coen brothers made Blood Simple. 
Oh, no kidding. Really? Yeah, yeah. So wow. it was like, and no, and I'm sure it probably like really flew way under the radar. And I'm not, I'm not sure that it got, got much attention at all except from uh, just hardcore uh, aficionados did, who would no. have noticed it at the time. Right. I remember hearing about it. Like that, that the guy that I left <laughs> the part for at LACC, he totally loved Blood Symbols. <laughs> mm. That shows you how smart he was, though. Um, but no, the the Jonathan Demi and the Coen brothers were just starting to make movies at this time, so they're just about to come and, and sort of change things. You know, mm-hmm. I was say Cronenberg also was 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 to um, find his find his way. He had made uh, The Brood in 1979, and then he made Scanners. And when was Videodrome? Was Videodrome in last year or next year? In it's 83 right or 85? This time, yeah. And um, yeah, and David Cronenberg and um, Jim Cameron, The Terminator, mm-hmm. and yeah, Rob Reiner, This Is Spinal Tap, you know, and Jim Jarmusch. A lot of these young directors were just starting to up and you know starting to come up in the world. Well, the older directors, the Oscar winners, which the Oscars invested so much in, are, are sort of falling flat, like Hugh Hudson. <laughs> mm-hmm. Movies like The Terminator that were probably thought of as just a, just a, a dumb, noisy action movies by a lot of people back then. In a retrospect, they are really they really lend themselves to a lot of uh, interesting analytical um, examination because that was in 1984. I think we mentioned last week that the computer was on the cover of Time magazine, so people were beginning to have a lot of becoming really aware of the computer and technology and everything and they were also beginning to have a lot of fear of it and paranoia about it like what is this thing this pandora's box that we've opened yeah and it was it was such a new introduction to different styles of filmmaking like rob reiner took his cue from woody allen right but jim cameron he was sort of starting fresh and the coens were kind of starting fresh they were about to reinvent their style of filmmaking and if you go back and look at the Terminator, it's cornball, just like Avatar is cornball, just like, you know, parts of Aliens are cornball. Whenever he writes, he writes in that way. But you see a really, really talented director at work with Terminator, as cheap and che- cheesy as it is. It's beautifully directed. And the creativity and imagination reminds me a lot of the creativity and imagination that we see in Pacific Rim. Which, sure, it's an action movie, and the, the dialogue is the dialogue might not be quotable, and my people might when they try to look at a screenplay just on the basis of the value of the dialogue, it seems dumb. But when you look at the thought and the creativity and the imagination that goes into creating something like Pacific Rim or The Terminator, it's pretty fantastic science fiction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's great. Those those movies that didn't get anywhere near Oscar really changed. This is Spinal Tap. You know, it completely changed the world of film. Mm-hmm. It's still considered one of the greatest, you know, mockumentaries, the only mockumentary ever made that, you know, it burst a whole genre on its own. Um, so it was a pretty good year for film, not Oscar-wise, unfortunately. Sort of a sad year Oscar-wise, a saggy year. Not really terrible, though, because it's not like there was some great film that got denied. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. You can look at the when you look at just from at, from the from the list of list of nominees and the winners. You can see you can you can convince yourself that the that it was justified. The winners were they they made the right choices. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, sure they did. And if you ask the public that year what movie should win, they would all say Amadeus. I mean, it really mm-hmm. it had captured the public's heart. I know that for a fact because I lived through it. And it's one of those movies that 
it, it, it ticks off all the boxes. It, it, every, every, every branch of the Academy is going to find something about that movie that, that makes them excited about what they right. do. Mm-hmm. The costumes, the, the production design, the, the music, the sound design, the cinematography. There's going to be something that everyone in Hollywood is going to look at and say, this, this is the best of what we do. Right. Like Oscar um, prognosticators tend to sometimes think like directors, like think like only the director branch, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we would look at it from a director's point of view and say, what is the best film? But you're right. I mean, look at it from a costumer's point of view. Amadeus mm-hmm. is the one, you know, mm-hmm. makeup, music, uh, it just it covered all those bases, like you said. It's that it's that old fashioned Oscar winner that wins across all branches. I haven't seen one of those in a while. I mean, the closest you come is is the artist, or uh, Slumdog Millionaire was really the last one to really really sweep. You would have thought that Lincoln might have been that movie, you know? I thought, and it, and yeah. it really should have been. It really should have been. But it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It so wasn't. every my, every week we have to say that. <laughs> to say, and that's what my, that's what I was reminded watching the Killing Fields. Talk about a movie that talks about a political event, about a, a, a mistake that the that the American government made and the disaster that it caused in people's lives and how they were able to. How, how individuals were able to try to get in there and fix some of the mistakes that were made. The Killing Fields does such a better job of that than Argo could ever hope to have done. You know, and, and this, the, 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 back to Argo. I have to shit on Argo every every week. I'm sorry, but I mean, comparing the Killing Fields to Argo, this is no comparison to me. I, mean, I know just... it is sad how kind of infantile film has become now that everything has to be PG-13. You know, everything has to be so safe and calm, and you know, Argo had no sex, it had no vulgarity, it had no violence. It was just so TV movie-ish. You know, like it's a the... movie that could have been on ABC. Mm-hmm. Except the, the, for pe- Argo the person who's being rescued in the Killing Fields, you really care so much about that uh, about Dithpron, but you don't even remember the hostages in Argo. You don't because none of them even have any lines. They don't even get to say anything. Right. So the goal of trying to save them doesn't feel. I don't really care about it. I know, but ugh. What are we going to do? I know. Yeah, ugh, exactly. <laughs> I shouldn't have even brought it up. I'm sorry. Because it, I'm, sure it just may, I'm sure it just aggravates a lot of people who just wish we would drop it. And a lot of people are really justifiably, I guess, fond of Argo. Silence. They can suck it. <laughs> <laughs> I find that most people, I don't, I don't really come across anyone who goes, yeah, that was the best movie. Most people I, you know, that I talk to say, that was okay. I'm really mm. surprised that it won. But yet it, did, it didn't just win. It won big, but we don't need to go back over that because we know why it won. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But I, I would just like it to be, like we talk about, is that movies could start being R again. They could start being for adults again, you know, and they didn't have to always a- appeal to that one demographic, which is really dumbing things down. But we should, I should mention, because this is another thing that's significant that happened in 1984, because um, um, Temple of Doom and Terminator were so violent... That's when they decided to have the new designation of PG-13. 1984 was the first year that had that they changed PG movies to PG-13. Wow. That, so that was a pretty big change for movies, right? That, oh, yeah. The, and then that, the that plus the rise of the blockbuster, you know, all coming together. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're seeing how, how and why things have turned into what they've turned into now. We're, we're seeing the beginnings of it now. Um, as we move through the 80s and then the 90s and then 
pretty soon we're going to get to the mid-90s when independ- where, where the Oscar race had to turn to independence because the big Hollywood movies were failing so badly in this way. And then it just keeps going in that direction. Although last year, I have to say, the big studios really um, stepped up. They had $100 million movies that were all really well-reviewed, and they were for adults, most of them. And um, It was a different kind of year last year, and hopefully this year will be the same. I think that's uh, mentioning the independent movie scene. It's interesting that you had earlier mentioned Jim Jarmusch because of Stranger Than Paradise in 1984, and he wasn't the only guy, but he was one of the guys who sort of lit the fuse of the whole independent movement of people making movies outside of the Hollywood system. It wouldn't come to fruition in terms of the public consciousness until you know ten, fifteen years later. But but here it is, here in 1984, the very start of it. Right. For sure. And the Coens, you know. Yep. Mm-hmm. Movies were never the same after the Coen brothers hit. And to their credit, they're, they're making movies within the system now, but they're still making movies that are from outside the system. Yeah, look at um, Jim Jarmusch has had a movie in Cannes, and so did the Coen brothers. It's kind of cool. Yep. Um, yeah, so... There you go. That's 1984, the most boring Oscar year on record, and a boring podcast to match. <laughs> <laughs> at, least we, we, at least I didn't make fun of Silver Linings Playbook. Oh, <laughs> you held your tongue. I, I kept my mouth shut for a change. I think we re- did really um, milk this year for all it was worth. And I think the thing that, uh, comparing um, 1984 to last year, for instance, there were there were 10 or 12 really excellent movies last year, that and that made it really hard to choose for the Academy, I think, and it wasn't as hard to choose in 1984 because really there were only three that ever had a chance at winning the Oscar, and they were the Amadeus and the Killing Field and right and what is what the other one uh, Places in the Heart. Those yeah. were the only three that could possibly you could they could could conceivably have won the Oscar for Best Picture. So the only thing more boring than Amadeus winning would have been Places in the Heart winning. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, God. It is kind of remarkable that she did get that second Oscar. I guess they kind of figured who else were they going to give it to. You know, they had to give it to one of the three. Um, Sissy Spacek already won. Jessica Lange already won. Judy Davis, I guess, was the only one who really didn't. But I just don't think enough people liked that movie, you know, to give it to, to her. It was a, it was a really a per, kind of for a leading actress role it was it was it was not that much bigger than Peggy Ashcroft's role you know really I, you could almost say that Peggy Ashcroft was the lead actress in Passage to India could almost say that yeah right exactly um, I don't know it was a weird year I, I tried to watch Places in the Heart actually and Sally Field is incredible in it let's just say I mean she is a mm-hmm. remarkable actress she's always good and she turns in a hell of a performance in that movie but it did sort of feel like she was winning one for the team, for the whole Save the Farm team, you know? It sort of seemed like that was the movement that year and somebody had to win. You've been listening to episode 37 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com.